Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Ruth, chapter 3. As a brief recap to chapter 2 leading up to chapter 3, let me just say where we left off. Naomi went gleaning in the fields. She meets Boaz. Boaz inquires to who she is. The servant says she's the Moabitess. She came here with Naomi. Boaz and Ruth start to have this relationship, not a romantic relationship, but a professional relationship in the sense that he knew who she was. He thought a lot of her because of the kindness that she had shown her mother-in-law. Naomi who says that God had dealt bitterly with her, has kind of snapped out of her depression. She is celebratory, and she begins to rejoice the fact that Boaz has lavished all of this kindness onto Naomi. Now, a major, major, major key point in the book of Ruth is the fact that it is ultimately pointing towards God's covenantal love and Christ's love for the church. This is a love story, but it's not a love story involving a man named Boaz, and a woman named Ruth. That meta-narrative between Boaz and Ruth is a representation of the grand narrative. And in that grand narrative, you have Jesus who has found for himself a bride being all the elect, all those whom he has redeemed and will redeem, and he brings them into covenantal fellowship with him. And now there's this marriage between Christ and the church. And that is what the book of Ruth is ultimately depicting. Now to further ensure that we see that picture, to further ensure that we understand the bigger picture here, what the painting on the canvas actually is, the author presents Boaz as a type of Christ. The Bible uses typologies, which is a way that God uses people throughout history and their lives to point to something bigger, to point to something greater. In this case, Boaz points to Jesus. So Boaz is a type of Christ. For more information on that, you can refer back online or to my notes to last week's sermon. And that'll help you understand that. So where we're left off in chapter 2 is with Boaz showing Ruth kindness, and Naomi's excited about that kindness. And so that's where we're left off in the book of Ruth. So Ruth chapter 3 picks up right there. And what you're going to see is Naomi begins to reveal what has most likely been her plan from the very beginning. And so it starts like this. It says, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now when it says, may I seek rest for you, what she's saying is not, hey, it's time for you to take a nap, nap. You're tired. You've been gleaning in the fields. I know that you're tired. Why don't you rest? That's not what that means. What she's saying is, I want to make sure that you are taken care of for life. I want to find rest for you. She's already mentioned this in chapter 1. She says, I want to seek rest for you. I love you. I want you to be taken care of. And Boaz is the means through which you can be taken care of. And so right here, the curtain is pulled back a little more, and we begin to see the plot that is unfolding, the plot that is thickening. 
She wants it to be well with Ruth. And she says, is not Boaz our relative? So here she comes out of the gate. Here's her intentions. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us if Ruth already knew Naomi's intentions. Maybe she did. But there's no doubt here because Naomi comes out with it. The things that she's been thinking. There may have been a seed that was already planted in Ruth's mind. And she's just fertilizing it. But either way, she comes out of the gate. She goes, is not Boaz our relative? Naomi feels there's really nothing to lose because he is, in fact, their kinsman redeemer. It wasn't completely out of sorts. It wasn't outlandish. It wasn't this crazy thought that Ruth might become married to Boaz. It made sense. It made sense. It was a good situation. It was something that Naomi wanted to happen because that would set Ruth up for life, but would also set Naomi up, by the way. It would set Ruth up. And so she says, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the, at the threshing floor. So she's saying, listen, We've got to jump on this. We've got to capitalize on this opportunity that we have. And I'm going to argue later that I think what Naomi's doing is that she is seeing the writing on the wall. She's seeing that God is sovereignly and providentially moving things into place. And she's responding to God's faithfulness. She's responding to God's goodness. God has brought them to Judah at the time of barley harvest. Boaz just happens to be a redeemer of the tribe of Judah, who was a kinsman to Elimelech, which was Naomi's former husband or deceased husband. So Naomi sees the writing on the wall. And she says, Ruth, we have to get with this. Listen, I'm going to tell you where he's going to be. He's going to be winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, winnowing, which is a term... We don't hear that much. It was done at the end of the barley harvest, which is where we are in the story now. It was performed by taking a tool, much like a pitchfork, and tossing the barley with the pitchfork into the air. The wind would then remove the chaff, and the rest would land on the ground. So this is how they got their barley as clean and as pure as they could. Is they would throw it into the air, and the threshing floor was normally at a location where there was usually a breeze. So they would throw that in the air. The breeze would take the chaff and it would take any of the little pieces or maybe impurities, imperfections. And then what would land on the ground at the, at the feet of, of the one doing the winnowing would be good barley. And that would be taken and bundled for, uh, for sale or for other usages at the threshing floor. And Boaz was most likely going to be at the threshing floor to protect his harvest. Because maybe there were thieves that could come in and take it. So he is literally going to sleep there that night just to watch over it. But that's where he's going to be. She knew this, and she's letting Naomi, letting Ruth know what's going to happen. So she gives her these instructions. She says, wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak. Ruth needed to be presentable. And Naomi's telling her, you need to clean yourself up, you need to smell good, you need to look good, because something's about to happen tonight, that is, that you are about to present yourself to Boaz. Now, this text isn't saying you're going to make an illicit gesture, or you're not going to offer yourself to him as a concubine, but rather, she is coaching Ruth towards presenting herself as a potential bride to Boaz. Listen, when you've got no family, church, when you've got no land, no money, no name, 
it's time to put things into high gear. You've got to do what you've got to do to get things done, to take care of yourself. Naomi is telling her young daughter-in-law to make herself attractive for Boaz. She's a young woman. And she doesn't want Boaz to lose sight of the fact that she's a young woman and could be a potential bride for him. Boaz is a single man. He's an older man. But that didn't matter. But she was not to force herself on to him. As a matter of fact, she was to go unnoticed, it says in the Scriptures, to go unnoticed until the time was right. So, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. This is the place they kept the finished grain. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Naomi is no fool here. A man is rarely happier than when he has a full belly. That's what that means. This doesn't mean when he's drunk. Naomi is not instructing her daughter-in-law to go, to go to Boaz when he's drunk so that she can have more powers in her persuasion or that she has more success in her coercive intentions. That's not what's happening. I think Boaz was not drunk. I think Boaz was a worthy man, the Scripture says. He was, he was a, a man of good reputation. He was an honorable man. Plus, how is a drunk man going to guard his barley that well? So this wasn't an issue of him drinking. This was an issue of Naomi saying, we want him to be in the best possible disposition. She's just playing her cards right. We want him to be in a good place dispositionally. He's fat, he's happy, he's got a full belly, he's not thirsty, he's not hungry, therefore he's most likely not grumpy, he's in a good mood, he's getting ready for rest, he's going to go lay down at the threshing floor, and this, and then you're going to, that's when you're going to do your thing. She says, but don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating or drinking. Don't do that. So I don't think this was an undercover operation that is to be taken as illicit or sexual. Now, there might be some that would think that. And you can't completely eliminate the fact from your mind that Ruth was, in fact, a Moabitess. This was a culture of paganism. I think I said it last week that in the Scriptures we understand that the Moabite women were responsible for leading Israelite men into idolatry and immorality. But I don't believe that's what's happening here. And I don't believe it given that she's about to propose. I believe that her intentions were not to seduce the man. And I think the proof is in the fact that she's going to end up proposing to him. She's not offering herself as a concubine, as a sex slave to him, but she's going to offer herself as a bride. She's going to do this thing the right way. It certainly could have turned out that way had Boaz not been an honorable man. This was a risky move for sure. But I think... I think, again, I think Naomi, in planting this seed, Naomi, in cultivating and fostering this idea, and Ruth going along with it, I don't think it was this issue to where they were trusting on their own prowess, their own abilities, their own coercive 
skills. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. I think they see the writing on the wall. I think they see that God has moved them into place providentially under his sovereignty. And then God is saying, you've gone through your season of waiting. Now it's time for action. I've provided this for you. You need to move on it. This is how God works a lot of the time. God brings us to a place, but then where is the role of faith in all of God's sovereign and providential activities? There are seasons of waiting and there are seasons of action in our life. And I believe here we have a season of action for Ruth and for Naomi. So Naomi instructs her further. She says, you need to go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. I know that sounds strange, but basically Ruth is to go in there. He's laying at the threshing floor. He's asleep. She slips in there. She doesn't take advantage of him. She doesn't make a pass at him. She doesn't touch him other than uncovering his feet. Now, most likely, the significance behind uncovering his feet was basically so that it would subtly stir him to get him awake. Because if there's this abrupt, rude awakening, that might not fare too well for this young Moabite woman. But instead, remove the covering from his feet. Most likely, because this was the threshing floor where the winnowing took place, there was a breeze, there was a little bit of a draft, so when the feet were uncovered, it would wake him up because his feet could feel the cool air that, were brushing, that was brushing past him. She says, uncover his feet, lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, Ruth proposing to Boaz was highly countercultural. A woman doesn't propose to a man, especially a foreign woman, but especially a foreign woman from Moab. But despite all that, Ruth, Naomi tells her to go. There are scholars that would argue when it says you must dress yourself that the idea there is that she would dress herself in apparel that would present her as a bride, sort of like a wedding gown, but not in the way that we would think of a wedding gown, as in a long white dress with a long train and a veil covering the face. So you see Naomi working through all of these things, and Ruth is getting these instructions on on what she's supposed to do. And I've mentioned to you that there are seasons of waiting and there are seasons of action, and they've already been through their season of waiting, and now they're seeing the writing on the walls, and they're moving forward. It appears that Ruth or Naomi is this schemer. It appears that maybe she's taking the matter into her own hands. But I think what she's doing is right, and I think what she's doing is appropriate. I think there are many examples of people that take the matter into their own hands and make no mistake about it. This is wrong. This is false. Abraham. Abraham was promised a son by God, a face-to-face encounter. God said, I will, I will promise you this. You will have a son. Now, God didn't give Abraham the timeline, but so many years went past, and what did Abraham eventually do. He stopped trusting God, and he took his servant, Hagar, and he had relations with her in order to ensure that he would have a son. So what is the major blemish on Abraham's record? It's unbelief. Abraham succumbed to his unbelief, which is why instead 
of waiting on God's fulfilled promise to bring a son through his wife, Sarah, who was barren, he does what? He succumbs to his unbelief, and he gets Hagar, the servant, pregnant. When he was in a season of waiting, he said, I can't wait anymore. David was promised to be king, but he would not raise his hand against Saul. David could have killed Saul. The times that Saul had, 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 was, was pursuing David and David had opportunity to kill him, David wouldn't do it. He said, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointing. Why? Because David was in a season of waiting. Things were coming. Things were promised. Namely, that David would become king and David waits on God. Because sometimes we're in a season of waiting, but sometimes there are also seasons for action. Perhaps a young woman or a young man is confident that the Lord has appointed them for marriage, not celibacy. They have a burning desire to be married, to be a husband to a wife, or to be a wife to a husband. And that is their strong desire. But the way that normally works is not that we just sit down playing video games for all of our life and hope that one day a wife or a husband just magically appears right before us or even sitting right on our lap. Thanks, God. Thanks, God. I waited on you. Here you go. No. The idea is that you take what you know of God and what God expects of a marriage and we actively pursue someone that might be of the character and the quality that would make for a godly marriage. That takes action. So sometimes there are seasons of action. We recognize that God has an elect. God has elected those who would be redeemed before the foundations of the world, but does that negate the call to action? No. Paul makes that very clear in his life as he gave his life along with the other disciples for the gospel. Paul even says, how will they call on him whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear without someone to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ? That's a call to action. So there are seasons of waiting and there are seasons of action. And this is what you and I go through all the time. Some of you right now are in a season of waiting, and it's a hard season, and it's very much a crucible of fire that will, that will serve to refine you and to make you stronger and to make you sharper when you come out the other end. But some of you are in a season of waiting, and some of you now are in a season of action where you've waited and waited and waited to the point that you don't know what you're waiting on anymore. Well, let me help you understand that you might be at the point where God has said, I've put the writing on the wall. I've given you provision after provision after provision. And through his sovereignty and providential hand, he has taken you to this place and to that place and says, now capitalize on what I've done. Make a move on what I've done. Move forward. I've gotten you this far, but you sit and you wait. Because you want God to do everything for you. Some of you want to be spiritually mature without any effort. Some of you want to be so close with God, yet you won't open the Bible to get to know who He is. You're in a season of action. And you need to move and work towards these things that God has brought you to the trough 
and now you have to drink. He's brought you to the table, and now you have to feast. I think Ruth and Naomi were for a stretch in a season of waiting, not knowing what God was doing, not knowing where things were going to end up. And now they're in a season of action where it's time to say, God, I think this is what you've put before me. I'm going to move forward with it in faith and see what happens. So verse 6, the story continues and says, So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight... The man was startled and he turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. Talk about a strange awakening to a woman at your feet. At the moment, a woman he did not know, a woman he did not recognize because it was dark. So Boaz said, who are you? And she answered, she said, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Let me help you understand the translation from Hebrew to English. When when the Hebrew text, or, well, sorry, when, when we see it in English here from the Hebrew, when he says, your servant, or when she says, your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. What that means? Marry me. That's the way that she proposed. That is her proposal. She's saying, marry me. In a humble and respectful way, she says, I am your servant. Spread your wings over your servant. For you are a redeemer. Protect me in the way that God has fit you to protect me. And she offers herself as a bride to Boaz. This is a major thing. This is a major thing. So let me explain something. He said, who are you? She said, I am your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, it was not uncommon for a woman to come up to a man and offer herself as a concubine. But the research that I've done has has told me that the fact that Ruth, the way she responds to him, and the fact that she uses the term servant twice was identifying herself as eligible for marriage. And so Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. You see, Ruth had options. She had options. But Ruth wasn't a gold digger. She wasn't just after his, she wasn't after his money in that sense. And I'm not pretending to see in the text that there was this physical attraction or that there was this great chemistry between the two. I think this was a practical situation. I think the stars align and God has made everything just so and in its right place so that this kind of thing can take place. So she offers herself to him as a bride and he says, you are blessed by the Lord, my daughter, that you would come to me and offer yourself as a bride to me when any young man would be blessed to have you. He says, and now my daughter, do not fear. 
I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen. Know that you are a worthy woman. Young ladies, this is the kind of man that you want. Mothers, this is the kind of man that you want your daughters to have. A man that respects her. A man that feels blessed to be pursued by her. A man that considers himself greatly fortunate and blessed by God to have your daughter desire to be with them. But not just that, a man that's a worthy man, a man that loves the Lord, a man that follows the Lord, and a man that has good reputation. So Boaz says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Customarily, the closest kin would be the redeemer. And Boaz didn't have to say this, by the way, but Boaz being integral says, even if I, even if, even if I wanted, he says, I have to be honest, there's someone else that has the right to be with you before myself. And then he says something strange. He says, I want you to remain tonight. I want you to remain tonight. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Boaz doesn't send her away. Nothing happens between the two that's in any way, shape, or form bad, scandalous, or anything like that. He says to stay. I think he's protecting her reputation. I'm sure he's protecting his reputation. But to protect her reputation, he says stay. And then when he finally sends her away, he sends her away before everyone else wakes up. But I don't just think that he's protecting her reputation. I think he's protecting her, period. Because there was just a party, by the way, where people were eating and were drinking. And I'm sure that there were drunks walking up and down the roads and the alleyways. And he doesn't want Ruth, this young Moabitess, this young woman, to walk out in the streets and to be taken advantage of by one of these men. Do you remember in the earlier chapters where Boaz says, I've told my men not to touch you, (coughs) implying that there are men there that would take advantage of this young woman. So I think Boaz is looking out for her. But then we see Boaz in typical Boaz fashion. Keep in mind, he is a type of Christ. So the things that he does, a part of his character, is just revelatory of Christ's character. So Boaz starts lavishing all these kindnesses onto Ruth. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when he came to her mother-in-law, or when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter. Wait until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So did you see what just happened? They go from this season of waiting to a season of action, back to a season of waiting. 
And the story ends right there. There's this major cliffhanger. And for those that have never heard the story, they're probably sitting on the edge of their seats just wondering what's going to happen. You're really rooting for Ruth and you're rooting for Naomi and you're hoping that this marriage just happens. And you see Ruth go into the threshing floor. She goes into the room. She uncovers his feet. He wakes up just as Naomi planned that it would happen. And they have this dialogue. And then, and then Boaz's honesty just interrupts the flow of the story. You're wanting Boaz to say, yes, I will redeem you. And then, man, this is this great thing that happens. But he says, I got to be honest, there's someone that's a closer kinsman to you than I. That's a worthy man. That's a man that's respectful. And that's where the story is left. Naomi says, you have to wait, daughter. You just wait. He will do what he says. He will do what he said he will do. And we will wait on him. And that's where the chapter ends. But I think it's time that we put it under the microscope and we see what the implications are of this story. And I've got a few thoughts that I just want to present to you that we take this narrative and now that we can back up a little bit, we can see this bigger picture. We can see how it must resonate with us. So a few points of application for you before we close. And we start with this. It's always better to see God work in his manner and in his schedule rather than assuming the role of God and forcing the issue on your own terms. Let me repeat myself. Is that not what Abraham did when God made him the promise and he succumbed to his unbelief and he had relations with Hagar to provide a son? That was not the way God told him that things were going to happen. He succumbed to his own unbelief. He took matters into his own hands and said, you know what, I don't trust your sovereignty and providence, so I'm gonna become my own sovereign and work through my own providential terms. And sometimes it's hard not to take action because waiting's never easy. It's just not. It's just not. Perhaps you are in a situation and God is teaching you to wait He's saying, I just need you to trust me. I just need you to sit there and trust me. Don't make the mistake of forcing the issue. This is unbelief, people. Naomi's actions were a result of her faith, not her unbelief. But it is worth the warning to wait. So how do we look at this practically? How do we look at forcing the issue because of a lack of faith? How do, we, how do we apply that now? How does that make sense to us now? Well, in Abraham's case, there was a very specific promise given to him, and yet Abraham had a kid with Hagar as opposed to the way God had said he was going to do it. So there's these very specific promises that God might give us. And you might find those very specific promises in the Scriptures And maybe there's these very specific promises that may come through a one-on-one exchange. But then you've got other promises that are universal in their application. So you're leaning in more on this universal promise, which is characteristic of God's character and of God's nature. And you're relying on that, which is also what 
Naomi and Ruth did. There wasn't this specific promise that I'm going to do this for you. What they saw was the character of God being displayed, and they said, we've got to move on this. So that's the difference. It was okay for them to move on it because they were seeing the writing on the wall and they were seeing God reveal his nature and they were like, you know what? God has shown us that we can trust him, so let's step out and trust him. As opposed to Abraham, whom God said, you do this this way, and he didn't. Listen, Isaiah 40, 31 is one of those universal promises that says, but they who wait, those who put their hope Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. There is a theology of waiting through the scripture. Abraham had to wait for a son. Joseph had to wait to be vindicated and delivered. David had to wait on the Lord's promise to become king. Paul had to wait on the Lord when scales fell over his eyes. Some of the hardest seasons of life are when we have to wait, but those are the sweetest seasons if we press in towards God in faith. And what happens when we press into God, it says, in those moments our strength is renewed, for they shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So it's always better to see God work in His manner and on His schedule. And if he says, wait, don't move, then you wait and you don't move. If he's shown you that he's trustworthy and he says, now that I've shown you this, step out in faith, move. Then you act and you go. This is how we ended up in South Carolina as church planters to a church that is sustained, to a church that's growing to a church that is out of the danger zone statistically. God didn't come to us and say, I'm promising you that you will have X amount of people, that that this is what the church will look like. We just felt that God had revealed to us what obedience looked like for us and that he was trustworthy And we went from a season of waiting to a season of action because we spent three years praying over this process before we felt that God had brought us out of our season of waiting and into a season of action. It's always better to see God work in His manner and in His schedule rather than assuming the role of God and forcing the issue on our own terms. Second point of application is this. Naomi and Ruth were driven by faith rather than fear. And there's a subtle nuance to see here. Consider Naomi and Ruth. For Ruth and Naomi to be driven by fear would mean that they did what they did because they were afraid that they would end up destitute. It takes God out of the equation. But rather, what they did was because they saw God in the equation. So they were driven by faith. To be driven by fear, this is... is, this does not necessarily mean that, we, that we're not to fear God. We are to fear God in that. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I'm not saying don't fear God, don't respect God, don't, don't, you know, don't come face to face or ignore, ignore the reality that God hates sin and that God is, is the author and the perfecter of our faith and all of these things. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But here's what I mean to be driven by fear. You see, we express this in a fear of men, and we express this through a fear of God not being God, or the fear that God will not 
be who he says he is and that God will not be true to his nature. But God's desire is not that we would be driven by fear. Why does he promise to look after us and keep us in his covenant if he wants us to be afraid? If he wanted us to be fearful, he would have given us a spirit of fear. But the scripture says he doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. But when we are driven by fear, we're driven by it in one of two ways, the fear of men. This is the sacrificing of God's affirmation on the altar of man's approval. This is the sacrificing of God's affirmation on the altar of man's approval. This also looks like remaining silent when we should when we should uh, <clears throat> speak up or out about the gospel, about right and wrong, because we're afraid of what men might say. That's being driven by fear, specifically the fear of men. But here's one that cuts a little bit more deeply. There's the fear that God won't be God. This is when we don't fully trust God. We don't trust that he will be faithful to his promises. So what do we do? We take matters into our own hands, hoping to ensure a certain desired outcome. That's what it means to be driven by fear. We want to be driven by faith. And this is what driven by faith means. This is action with the certainty of God's goodness, but with no certainty as to what that goodness will look like. For Ruth and Naomi, they knew that God was good. They knew that God loved them. They knew that God could be trusted and that God was building the house of Israel and that God had a covenant people and that God made covenantal promises and that he was true to his word. So they knew that God was good. And because they saw the writing on the wall, they said, we're going to step out in faith. They did not know how it would end up. The disciples knew that Jesus was good. They knew the promises of Christ. And they end up dying for the gospel. But God is still good. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change his character. It doesn't change his nature just because the end might be something that we see as bad. But that's what driven by faith means. It means, yes, God, I will go to the mission field. But the promise is not that 50,000 people will come to Christ and I will live to be 120 years old and leave this legacy that people will write about for the rest of eternity. It doesn't mean that. It means you are good and you have my best interest and your glory in mind. I don't know what that will look like, but I feel that you're calling me to action. I'll step out. That's what it is to be driven by faith. It looks like having a terminal illness and making the choice daily to have the right attitude and not fight for joy despite, and to fight for joy despite whatever the prognosis might be. Ultimately, this means to follow our Lord based on our knowledge of His character, our knowledge of His power and His sovereignty. It trusts in His provision, His motives and His desires. The book of Ruth is most assuredly a love story, but not between a Jewish man and a foreign woman. It's a love story about Christ our Redeemer and God's covenantal faithfulness 
to those that the Father gave to the Son and that the Son redeemed from the ashes and brought into right fellowship with Him, brought into marriage with Him. That's what the book of Ruth is about. May we not be driven by fear, but because of God's obvious covenantal love and faith and faithfulness and because of Christ's deep affections for His bride, may we live in accordance with what we claim as we trust Him. And may we never, ever assume the role of God, assume the role of sovereign, and take matters into our own hands, thus proving our unbelief because we think we know better than God. God has our best interest in mind. God as the absolute sovereign, providentially working in that sovereignty, God will provide all things that we need. And God loves us. So may we represent Him well as we leave this place today. And may we show the world through our actions that they can trust Him. Let's pray.